It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to WikiPolitiki, a show designed to bring right and left front and center, to turn the funk into function, and leave the junk at the junction. At a time when so much political discourse is heat without light, WikiPolitiki shines the light of love and truth on the endarkened corridors of power, and then brings leading solutionaries into conversation to light the way forward together. Your host is Steve Behrman, author, comedian, and political and spiritual uncommentator. You might know Steve as his cosmic comic alter ego, Swami Beyond Ananda, or as the author of a more serious book with cellular biologist Bruce Lipton, Spontaneous Evolution. If you recognize that crisis precipitates evolution, and judging by the current crises, the chances of precipitation are 100%, this show is for you. Welcome to the Evolutionary Upwising. Now, here is your host, Steve Behrman. Well, hi there, and welcome to WikiPolitiki, Conversations for Co-Creation, where we shed light on the darkened corridors of power and shine a light ahead of us to the path where evolution is leading. The purpose of WikiPolitiki Radio is to bring left and right, front and center, to face the music and dance together, to address problems instead of defending positions. Now, you know, when sane and reverent people look at our current political, ecological, uh, and uh, spiritual uh, situation, new word, situation, it's understandable if they ask, is this the hand of God at work or just the middle finger? Well, our guest on WikiPolitiki this week, Stefan A. Schwartz, who has spent a lifetime delving into physical and metaphysical reality, offers a deep perspective on the challenges we face individually, collectively, and as a species as we address three key questions for transformation. What so? So what? And now what? Stephen A. Schwartz is an award-winning author of fiction and nonfiction, including his book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. He's a columnist for the journal Explore, He's editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, where he covers trends that are affecting the future. He's been associated with numerous academic institutions, Saybrook University and the Rhine Institute, to name just two. He's also a BIAL fellow, a senior Samueli fellow for brain, mind, and healing for the Samueli Institute, and he's a senior fellow of the Philosophical Research Society and uh, from meeting him in person, I can attest he's a jolly good fellow as well. Um, he has also worked with the U.S. Navy as Special Assistant for Research and Analysis to the Chief of Naval Operations, and he's been a consultant to the oceanographer for the Navy. For, the, for about 40 years now, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly 
that aspect independent of space and time. Uh, he is part of the small group of that founded modern remote viewing research and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. There's plenty more to uh, Stefan's resume, but I definitely want to leave time for the actual interview. So welcome, Stefan. Welcome to you, Steve. Good to talk to you. Good. Now, I want to give the listeners an idea of where you're coming from and the purpose of your work. So I'm going to read the mission statement that appears on the Schwartz Report website. I'm quoting now. When I began Schwartz Report, my purpose was to produce an entirely fact-based daily publication in favor of the earth, the interconnectedness and interdependence of all life, democracy, equality for all, liberty, and things that are life-affirming. Also, to warn my readers about actions, events, and trends which threaten those values. Our country now stands at a crossroads indeed. The world stands at a crossroads where those values are very much at risk, and it is up to each of us who care about well-being to do what we can to defend those principles, unquote. So, Stefan, please share more of this overview with us as we address those three questions. What's so? So what? And now what? What's the condition? How did we get here? And uh, <laughs> now what do we do? In 25 words or less, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, uh, I've... I have spent a good part of my life, or most of my adult life, I'm an experimental scientist. And so what I care about is data. I'm a fact person. I'm not interested in political partisanship except anthropologically. I'm not interested in your political philosophies or your metaphysic uh, politics or whatever. What I care about is facts, and I, and I get them by studying social outcome data. That is, if you do this, what happens that can be objectively measured? And so all of my comments are based on facts and on the social outcome research that I do and that other people do that I read and, and integrate. I find us... Uh, based on your three questions, I think we are at a point of catastrophic civilization threatening crisis for which we are in the United States almost singularly unprepared. And I have looked at how do you create change? How is it that individuals, ordinary people can and have caused positive, well-being, fostering social change, because as I have studied this, I have realized, uh, based on the data, that there is no force on earth more powerful than the collective intention of ordinary people. And nobody ever talks about that. Most people feel, well, you know, I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't have any money, particularly. I, I don't have an official position. I don't command an army. So, you know, what can I do? And the answer is you can do a lot. And when you get other people to join you, you can really do a lot. So that's, uh, that's what I'm interested in because I think we are at, as I say, a place of cataclysmic change, unlike anything in human history. And I think it is dependent on each of us as individuals 
and as small groups to recognize our power and to exercise it. Let's let's go back a little bit because you know you're you know you've been around for a while. Um, you've been adult an adult throughout the uh, '60s and and since that time, you were uh, at, you actually at uh, Martin Luther King's um, speech at uh, in 1963, the I Have a Dream speech. And I'm just wondering how did you um, going back before we can go forward? How did you get involved with all of all of these things? How did you become interested and curious about uh, the kinds of change that you're looking at right now? Well, as to Dr. King's speech, which, yes, was really an extraordinary experience, I got interested in civil rights when I was – I didn't think of them as civil rights. I don't think I've ever told this story. But when I was about eight or nine years old, I lived in Cincinnati, at that point, uh, my family lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the winter during the school year, and then we moved to Virginia in the uh, in the summer. Um, uh, and then, when I was 16, we moved full time to Virginia. Anyway, I had a woman that took care of me, a black lady. Uh, when I was a little boy, a kind of nanny, and and I liked to look at trains. And in those days, you could go take the streetcar down to the Union Station in Cincinnati and and uh, go down and watch the trains, which I was very keen on. So we went down one summer, and, and uh, we're down in the place where everybody waits for the trains, and it, they used to have a kind of, oh, like a soda fountain bar where you could get drinks. And there were there were um, uh, fountains, uh, water fountains, and one said whites only and the other said colored. And I, I, had, I was an early reader, and so I was very proud of the fact I could read things. And I didn't understand why there – had to be two separate fountains. It, I just didn't see the point. But in any case, I was sitting there with with uh, Beretta, and um, there was a little black boy with his grandmother who were sitting you know, on a bench near us, and he went up to get a drink of water at, at the colored fountain, and it didn't work. And so his grandmother called him back and sat down, and I thought, well, that's nuts. So I went up to the soda fountain. You know, I'm a nice little upper class white boy. And I asked the fountain attendant if he would give me a glass of water in one of those little metal things with the, the triangular paper uh, things they used to use at soda fountains, which he did. And he gave me this glass of water and and so I went over and gave it to this black kid. Who I, I mean, I didn't know him. He was just, he wanted a drink of water. And my God, you could hear the sphincters tightening all over the room. <laughs> and, and, and Beretta uh, and this grandmother took a look at each other. And Beretta, without a word, got, took, got me up and walked. we walked out. And as I walked out, I could hear all these racial comments, which I didn't even understand, except that they were hate-filled. I mean, I didn't even understand the words, but I definitely got 
that whatever it is I had done, which I didn't understand. And so that made me aware for the, really, as I say, about eight or nine years old, that made me aware for the first time about racial differences and the fact that, that black people were not getting a fair shake. And when I got older, I became involved in the civil rights movement, and that culminated in going down to uh, walk down Constitution Avenue to the Lincoln Memorial, along with hundreds of thousands of other people, to hear Dr. King give the I Have a Dream speech. And as we were walking along, I, was, I had a friend who was a reporter for the Washington Post at that point. I was working for National Geographic. As we were walking down the, the uh, uh, street, I looked over and saw three partners from the, the leading Republican law firm. And I happened to know this firm and knew people at it. And uh, I looked at these three guys, these three you know partners of this big Republican firm. And I looked at uh, uh, Richard and I said, we've won because those guys would not be out on the street unless something substantive had changed. And that got me interested in how does social transformation occur? How do, what makes it happen? And that started mm -hmm. a whole process of, of, of really studying outcome data, social outcome data, to see how that happened. How, how did Martin Luther King pull that off? I mean, you know, he's a, an, a, originally an obscure pastor of a church, a black church. And how did he become a national figure and and create the change that resulted in the the Voting Rights Act '64 and and the Civil Rights Act '65? So it got me started uh, later on when I was working at the Navy as the special assistant to the chief of naval operations and our our task was to transform the military from an elitist conscription organization of Vietnam and of the era and I had been a vet I was an army medic um, an enlisted man and I got drafted when I was at National Geographic but anyway, in 1970, a guy named Elmo Zumwalt. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was made the chief of naval operations, and Mel Laird, who was then the secretary of defense, gave him the task of transforming the military. And so we began to look at, well, how do you do that? 
and there was enormous resistance to it because a lot of people, very conservative, the military tends to be very conservative, were concerned that it was going to break down command and control, as they call it. That is, the social order was going to be threatened and, and people wouldn't obey orders or whatever. But the, but the reality the military faced was you could no longer have a military that was based, a high-technology military that was based on conscription. Because if you drafted a guy for, say, three years, and it took, as it did, to, for instance, to train a sonar man on a ship, it cost about, in those days, about $500,000 to train a sonar man. It took about 18 months to train him, and then it took the rest of that second year to get him up to speed when he went to sea. Well, you really only got about a year's worth of work from him, and then if he left, you had to start all over again, and it just wasn't viable. So the military, in the face of technological development, nobody ever talks about this, by the way, needed, realized that they had to change and that something – they had to create an all-volunteer meritocracy where people would stay. Well, what would it take to do that? And because I had been an enlisted man, everybody else was talking about sort of top-down. This was, this was the you know Johnson's great society from the top down, and and I my argument was we had to do it from the bottom up because you had to get people to agree to stay. You couldn't compel them. And an all-volunteer military, you can't compel them to stay. So what would keep them there? And I, we, we organized what came to be known as rap sessions. That shows you how dated it is. But we, <laughs> got, we got junior enlisted people and junior officers to talk about what would it take to keep you in the military. And everybody was – all the senior NCOs and all the senior officers – you know, they were all concerned about things that it turned out didn't matter at all. What the junior officers and junior enlisted were concerned about was, uh, my wife needs more laundromats to clean the children's clothes, or we need more daycare centers, or the sailors would come in. This was during the height of the anti-Vietnam War, and I was against the Vietnam War. But the sailors would, would at these meetings would say, you got to let us grow our hair longer because if you wear a military haircut, this is anti-Vietnam during the 70s, and you go into a bar, you get in a fight because they can tell you're in the military. So we want to be able to grow beards and we want to be able to grow our hair longer and have mustaches and so we don't stand out and, and don't get into fights. And I, I can't wow. tell you how much resistance – there was enormous resistance to this from the senior military, and it culminated in a, in a meeting in which I was sitting across from several admirals who were violently against it. And I looked over the shoulders of one of them, and I could see all these paintings of famous nautical heroes. And every single one of them had hair down to his shoulder and had a beard. And I just started <laughs> to laugh. And... Uh, uh, a guy named Bill Thompson, who was then uh, Admiral Thompson, the Chief of Naval Information, looked realized I wasn't laughing at the Admiral. I was looking at something over his shoulder, and he turned and looked 
And he saw Admiral Morey and John Paul Jones, you know, all these guys with long hair and beards. And he got it. And so sailors were allowed to grow their hair. So as long as it didn't go over their their shirt uh, collars and they could have nicely trimmed beards and mustaches. I mean, little things like that made a huge difference. And that that allowed us to be transformed the military from the elitist organization that we had grown up with and to create this new military, the military of today. And that, Very interesting. That, well, I'm just going to say We're going to have to take a short – really got me started. Good. We'll be back with uh, Stefan A. Schwartz after these messages and talk more about how we make these changes. Steve Berman, Wikipolitics. Connecting you with the best of the conscious minds in the world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Om Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment. A philanthropic organization, their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. Ohm Times, co-creating a more conscious lifestyle. More than 24 million Americans have an autoimmune disorder, and that number continues to grow. I'm Sharon Saylor, and I'm one of those 24 million. To put that number in perspective, cancer affects about 9 million and heart disease up to 22 million. That's why I've brought together top experts and those thriving regardless of their diagnosis to bring you the latest, most up-to-date information. Join me, Sharon Saylor, Friday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, for the Autoimmune Hour on Life Interrupted Radio to find out how to live your life uninterrupted. Are you done with the daily barrage of negativity? Ready for some positivity? Creations Magazine has been inspiring the soul for over 30 years, delivering thought-provoking and solution-driven articles, essays, and poetry that inspire you to enjoy a vibrant life. Holistic health, personal and spiritual growth, relationships, the environment, and so much more. Read us online or order a subscription, creationsmagazine.com. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Hi, this is Steve Behrman on Wikipolitiki. We're back with uh, Stefan A. Schwartz. We're talking about change. You know, it's funny. You told the story. I, I really appreciated your, your initial story of uh, how, as a child, I mean, this, you, you noticed this absurdity. And um, not everybody who notices that absurdity actually takes it on and begins to think about it. Many people just go back to ordinary reality. Um, you know, that was uh, 60-something years ago or more. 
And uh, you also talked about being on the march uh, with Martin Luther King and noticing the Republican lawyers there. And uh, I was in Washington, D.C. when King was assassinated. And uh, my roommate, Joel, who's a teacher, he and his friend Stan were both uh, both uh, freedom riders in 1964 in St. Augustine, Florida. And Stan was a Republican lawyer. And the two of them went out and basically uh, commiserated, uh, went to a bar and stayed out all night uh, because of that. And we've come to the point now where the Republican Party has become essentially a cult. And they've gone from uh, yes. the, Dow, the Dow Jones to the Jim Jones, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> how How is it that how, in, in a short in short form, how did we devolve into that kind of uh, that kind of a situation? Uh, well, it happened over a period of years, and it began with Nixon and the Nixon Southern strategy. When the uh, until uh, until Nixon until the sixties, the uh, the South had been democratic and been racist democratic because the Democratic Party in the South at that time was a racist party. But that changed. And the the Southerners who were racist became concerned they were going to lose power. And so the Republicans, seeing this vacuum arise, created what they called the Southern strategy. That's part of it. And they began to pander to this. Also, beginning in the 1920s, with the rise of radio, uh, there was the rise of a kind of Christian fundamentalism, which isn't really Christian. It just uses the words, terms of Christianity and quotes Jesus a lot, but really has almost nothing to do with Christianity. And that uh, radio made it possible for a lot of these right wing, I think of them as Christo-fascists, uh, these Christo-fascist preachers to gain national audiences. And that began to combine with the Republican uh, Southern strategy as these Christo-fascist preachers uh, who are also racist and also, and this is very important, male dominance uh, f fanatics, uh, this kind of Abrahamic Middle Bronze Age thinking but the third part of the, this, the, the, the tripod that created this was the rise of neoliberalism and the idea that uh, trickle-down economics is part of that, uh, the idea that uh, what's good for the wealthy trickles down to help the, the middle class and the poor. Of course, that's not true. But in any case, those three things, the, the rise of uh, – Christofascism, the, the dominance, uh, the, the takeover in the South by the Republican Party of essentially Christofascist politics and the rise of neoliberalism, those three things combined over the course of Nixon, of course, and then Reagan, uh, who was a disaster, in my opinion, um, that that combo has brought us to Donald Trump. 
Now, there are other factors that are involved as well. About 27% of the population have um, overactive right amygdalas. The amygdala is a little almond-sized gland in your brain, and it's important because it's connected to fight or flight. And it when you have an overactive amygdala, it correlates very strongly, this is again based on research, with uh, ultra-conservative politics and religiosity. So you've got that. And then the other thing is the demise of the civics classes in public schools. You know, this is, I just find this the most astonishing thing. 64% of Americans can't, cannot name the three branches of the federal government. I mean, you just take that aboard for a second. When yeah. you say to them, yeah. what are the three branches of government? The answer is being, of course, legislature, executive, and judiciary. They can't answer that question. So the, you, in the midst of all of this, you have growing ignorance. And then you have the, uh, as a, a, a be, beginning with the suffragettes in 1918 and continuing on to the Me Too movement today, the rise of gender equality which is very threatening to white men. They get very freaked out with the idea that women are equal. Um, and so you have this combination of factors that are growing in the culture, and that's what produced Donald Trump. I mean, he's a symptom, he's not the disease. Uh, I mean, yep, that that yep. a man like that could even get elected is astonishing. It it has been, and, and and I think all of those factors. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You mentioned are, are totally right on. Um, let's jump into, however, the the eight laws of change. Uh, and, you know, right now, we, we most of the people listening to this uh, program are, in fact, everybody listening is aware of the challenges that we're that we're facing right now. And how deeply entrenched this um, this establishment is, even if it's even if they've presented themselves as an insurgency, the Trumpites. But let's look at how things do change, how things have changed, and what we can extrapolate from that. So, talk about the eight laws of change and how that came about, and what you discovered. Okay, uh, Steve. Well, the eight laws came out of. Um, about 20 years ago, or actually 25 years, I guess it's getting on. Anyway, I really got interested in how individuals and small groups change the course of history. 
in in a well-being oriented way. And I say that because to be absolutely upfront about where I'm coming from, it is my belief that the function of the state is to foster well-being at every level, from the individual, the family, the community, the state, the nation, and the planet itself. That's what the function of government ought to be, fostering well-being. So that people, and that's what the founders had in mind, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what they were talking about. That's what they were trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think they're right. I spent a, a considerable part of my life, I have a whole other life as a historian of the early American Republic, and particularly George Mason and, and Benjamin Franklin. And uh, it was obvious to me by studying the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and, and before and after, that what the founders were talking about was creating a state which fostered well-being. So I got to looking at, well, what happened? Why did it go off the rails? And what would it take to get it back on the rails, as it were? And I studied between 1906 and 2014, I studied about 200 social transformation movements all over the world. And it was, uh, it was actually, it didn't, it produced results that that research that I did not expect and wouldn't even have agreed with when I started. For instance, if you look at social transformation movements all over the world, you find out that movements which are, are based in violence only succeed about 25% of the time. And even when they succeed, they don't last very long. I mean, you look at, for instance, National Socialism, the Nazis. That only lasted from, well, depending on exactly when you pick it, you know, Hitler becoming chancellor. But it's basically mm -hmm. 1933, 31. 12, 12 years, basically 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's basically 12 years. You look at communism uh, from roughly, well, the first uprising, 1905, but really 1918 to 1991. So mm -hmm. it's about, I think it's about 70 some years. It's the, it's the length of a single person's lifetime. It doesn't last long. Whereas you look at what the founders of the United States did in putting together the constitution, that's lasted for over two centuries. It's the oldest form of government in the, in the world right now. So if you look at that, you see that Violence does, is not a productive way to change society. Nonviolence, in contrast, to my surprise, I freely acknowledge, succeeds about 75% of the time. And when it does succeed, it endures. And the reason is that violent transformation is exclusive. That is, it pushes some of the people out. So there's a, an aggrieved group who feel that they've been dealt a bad hand, whereas nonviolent social change is inclusive. Everybody feels like, well, I got a stake in this. And you can see this most clearly uh, in uh, Gandhi and the independence of India. You know, just before he was assassinated in 1948, 
a reporter went up to Gandhi at his ashram and and said to him, you know, my editor sent me up here. I just wanted to ask one question. And Gandhi said, well, what's the question? And he said, my editor wants to know how you forced the British to leave India. How did you get one of the most powerful nations on earth to give up their most prized colonial possession? And you did it without a war. You don't have any army. You don't have any money. You don't have any official position. How did you force the British to leave? And Gandhi's answer is the, is the answer to all of this. He said, it's not what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It's not what we said that mattered, although it did matter. It was the nature of our character, who we are, that made the British choose to leave India. Choose, not force. That's the power of collective intention of ordinary people. You know, no, very few people seem to remember this anymore, but Gandhi got independence for India without a war. I mean, we couldn't do that in the United States. So mm -hmm. he did that. And, and let's go back a step further. Gandhi got to this because of an American. Henry David Thoreau wrote a little book when he was sitting next to Walden, uh, Walden Pond up in the northeastern United States. And it's an actual pond, by the way. I've been there. It's mm -hmm. not a lake. As he was sitting by this little pond, he wrote, a, a, it's not as big as a book. It's a monograph, which he called Civil Disobedience. Gandhi, when he was a young man in South Africa, he was a young barrister. People don't know that, but Gandhi was a lawyer. And he was very proud, and he was a very sort of Anglophile lawyer. He wore the kind of clothes English barristers wore, and and he was quite proud of himself because he had gotten this degree. And he went to buy a first-class rail ticket, and they wouldn't let him go in first class because he was what in South Africa at that time during the apartheid era was called a colored. He was a non-white, not a black, but a non-white. So they made him ride in third class and it really made him angry. And he put up a fuss and they put him in jail. And while he was in jail, I don't know how this happened, but while he was in jail, he came across Henry David Thoreau's little monograph, Civil Disobedience. And he read it and he thought, this is how I can get independence for India. And he went, he left South Africa, he went back to India and was successful. And Martin Luther King, a young Baptist, pre, AME Baptist preacher uh, in the American South, reads about Gandhi and he reads about Gandhi reading the civil disobedience and he reads it and he decides, well, I'm going to do what Gandhi did. I'm going to use those principles that Henry David Thoreau uh, wrote out. And I'm going to start the civil rights movement. And he did. And he was successful. So if you think about it, one obscure, considered by at the time, the highly eccentric, transcendentalist writer and thinker, Henry David Thoreau, sitting next to a little pond, wrote a monograph which changed the course of history of three of the most powerful nations on earth the United States, Great Britain, and India. So don't ever let it be said that 
something you think or say or write can't make a difference. Wow, what a, what a remarkable story. We're about to take a short break. We'll be back with the uh, with more about the laws of change and also how we can put them into practice. A great story. This is Steve Behrman. We're on Wikipolitiki. Back after this message. Free your mind with Ohm Times Radio, IOM FM. Ascending Hearts is no ordinary dating site, but a spiritual dating site with a purpose, to link you with your soulmate. We engineer the serendipity so you can trust that you will attune with someone that has the same matching vibration as you. Ascending Hearts, the conscious dating site for the spiritually aware. Try Ascending Hearts for free, ascendinghearts.com. The student asks the teacher, how do I experience transformation? The teacher replies, when the student is ready to receive deeper answers, the student then asks, how do I know what deeper questions to ask? And the teacher replies, when the student decides to commit to a practice inviting transformation, level two questions will be revealed. Hi, I'm Tomas Garza, and as a teacher and host, I'm inviting listeners to enroll in the Mastery of Transformation by joining me on Decide to Transform, your bridge to level two answers. Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern on Ohm Times Radio. The Shift Network, presenting transformative programs and events to help you waken to your full potential so that together we can build the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Our classes support you in finding and cultivating your gifts and in bringing those gifts to the world to create tangible change and connect us as global citizens. Go to theshiftnetwork.com or follow the link on the WikiPolitiki sponsors page. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. Well, this is Steve Behrman on Wikipolitiki. We're back for our final segment with uh, Stephan A. Schwartz and wow, so much to cover, but I want to cover one thing in this in this last uh, last segment. The eight, you know, completing on the eight laws of change, and how can people who are listening in on this? How can ordinary people um, have an extraordinary impact on on the world, uh, particularly given this um, this dire moment that we find ourselves in right now? Okay, so. Um, so I started doing research on social transformation, as I said, and the 75-25 thing I mentioned. And out of this research emerged eight laws. I didn't invent them. Um, I, they're simply patterns that I saw in all the successful 
social transformation movements. And I learned a great deal about this, by the way, from the Quakers, who are probably the most successful group of people in the world at creating social change. You know, the Quakers are a tiny, tiny little group of people. There's only about 211,000 of them in the world out of seven and a half billion people. In the United States, there's less than 87,000 of them out of population about 329 million. And yet, if you look at every major social transformation movement from the colonial period onward, uh, abolition of slavery, penal reform, public education, uh, women's suffrage, uh, the environmental movement, uh, nuclear freeze, what you find is that it was begun by a little group of Quakers. Uh, this, it all tracks back. And yet we never know, we don't know their names. I mean, I spoke at a conference recently and I said, how many people here know that Greenpeace was, was one of the largest environmental movements in the world, was founded by a couple of Quaker couples and some, uh, va some media people up in Vancouver, Canada? Nobody. So mm -hmm. if you look at that, the, why were the Quakers so successful? And the answer is because they figured out the eight laws. So let's go through the eight laws. That's the quickest way. Law number one, the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. Now, if you've ever been on a school committee or a neighborhood committee or anything, you know that trying to get everybody on the same page to share the same intention, not easy, but you have to do it. Law number two, the individuals in the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. I learned this from the abolitionists, because if you read their diaries and the correspondence or contemporaneous accounts, what you see over and over again is slavery is a moral evil. It's got to end. I'm not quite sure how it's going to end, but it's going to end, and I'm going to work to make that happen. So you can have a goal, but not a cherished outcome. Because if you demand that it occur in a certain way, you cut off all kinds of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Law number three, the individuals in the group must accept that their goal may not be reached in their lifetimes and be okay with this. Again, I learned this from the abolitionists. that They would say in their correspondence, God, I don't know. This is so awful. I don't know if it's ever going to get resolved in my lifetime. But it's just such a moral evil that I'm going to keep working for it no matter what. So you may not happen in your lifetime, but you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Law number four, the individuals in the group must accept that they may not get either credit or acknowledgement for what they've done and be authentically okay about this. And that, again, I learned this from the abolitionists, from the Quakers, from the uh, women suffragettes uh, trying to get the vote equality for women. Over and over again, they would be. You'd see these names that you'd never heard before. Nobody ever talks about them in history class or anything. Or as I mentioned, you know, look at the Quakers. How many people could name the Quakers that started penal reform, for instance, or public education, let alone Greenpeace? So you have mm -hmm. to do this because it's the right thing to do, even though you may not get credit for it. Law number five, each person in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, 
must enjoy fundamental equality, even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the effort are respected. Now, that arises, I think, because we are high-order primates. And it is the nature of high order of primates to organize hierarchically. I said this once to a, a fundamentalist group, and they got really upset because the idea that we were high order primates upset them very deeply. Um, well, you should have confirmed, truth, confirmed that he, that was a low order. He was a low order primate. That would have made him feel better. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know, but anyway, yes. So we organize hierarchically. It's the nature. Of what it of how humans organize things, so the the key point here is that just because you may owe, uh, uh, hold a higher position, does not mean that you are a superior person. And there's a very important distinction in that. So everybody is equal, but you organize hierarchically. So some people hold higher roles than others, but you always keep that distinction clear in your mind. Law number six, the individuals in the group must forswear violence in word, act, or thought. Now, me personally, this was the hardest one to deal with because when I was involved in the civil rights movement and I saw, for instance, policemen putting dogs on women and, and, and older people, my reaction was not nonviolent. And so it took me a lot to really get through that. But that's what you have to do. Law number seven, the individuals in the group and the group itself must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. I mean, I don't have to tell you, Steve, how many preachers or leaders or political leaders speak one way and live another way. How many, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people with present themselves as great moralists who were out, um, you know, sleeping with uh, young girls in, or young boys uh, in the back room and that kind of thing. You've got to be authentically who you are. Law number eight, the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. That is, mm. the goal, the pr first priority must always be to foster well-being. And all of the successful uh, social transformation movements that, that are successful figure out these eight laws in different ways, of course. It's not like they, they have a list that they learn. It's that they work it out, but that they work out those eight laws. Now, the final question, what do you do as an individual? And the answer to that is what I call the quotidian choice. Quotidian is an odd word. You don't hear it very often. It means mundane, daily, ordinary. And I picked it, uh, a quotidian choice, because it's an odd word, so it stands out in your mind. And basically what the quotidian choice is, is that every day you make lots of choices. You buy a certain kind of toothpaste. You buy a certain kind of cat food. Uh, you buy a certain kind of laundry detergent, whatever. Every one of those represents a choice, a kind of vote. And so every day you make these hundreds of these little choices. First of all, become aware that you're making a choice. And second of all, always and consistently choose the, the option that is available to you 
that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. Now, none of the options may be great, but inevitably one of them is always slightly better than the others. And so you always choose that option, which is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. And if you want to really become a factor, you tell 10 of your friends that you are doing that, and you invite them to join you in that discipline. And I will tell you, and I can prove it to you, I mean, I can, I can prove it statistically. If the people who are listening to this broadcast today will make that commitment, the commitment to the quotidian choice, and they tell 10 of their friends that they will do it, it will change the course of the outcome of the election in 2020. Yeah, that, this is really interesting. I want to really reflect on this because my questions were what's so, so what, and now what? And, of course, you know, we outlined the what's so that for various reasons, um, the power of money uh, has enrolled the power of, um, of uh, fear and prejudice uh, to uh, put us in this dominate or be dominated situation that we're in now. And the uh, – the so what, the uh, so what do we do about it, and what are the implications? Given your uh, the the uh, eight uh, laws of change, what's notable about those eight laws is that they all reflect uh, personal uh, integrity and congruency with fundamental moral principles. Uh, so that in a in a certain regard, the um, the way to uh, transforming these physical conditions that we're seeing is really uh, it's a spiritual conversation. That's interesting that it was the Quakers um, who uh, were so uh, who had so much influence. And uh, if you look at the civil rights movement, of course, it started in churches. Uh, uh, and and here we are. Uh, since the end of the civil rights movement, the progressives have gone the route of um, secularism and religious skepticism and consequently there's been a breach between uh the spiritual and the material and you know we're we're kind of a schizophrenic society so how maybe a reflection on how to reintegrate these two um lost sheep uh the 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 scientific materialist and the religious fundamentalist how do we emerge from that um obsolete duality? Well, there is a very big difference between spiritual and religious, for starters. Yes. Uh, we don't have enough time left in your show to get into this, but but if you look at religion, you strip away the dogmas and all the, that's all human-created stuff. Every religion begins with one individual who has a non-local consciousness experience. What you call spiritual, I would call non-local consciousness. I mean, there's right. a reason the, the 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 Quakers are so successful. The Quaker, uh, most people don't know a Quaker, don't have any idea what they believe or what their practices are. But a Quaker meeting is a meditation. It's a group meditation. And that matters because the key to opening to non-local consciousness is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. 
Uh, we know in the research, for instance, in remote viewing that meditators do better than non-meditators. We know from the healing therapeutic intention research that meditators do better than non-meditators. Why? Because they have the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And what you call spiritual, as I say, I would call non-local, this doesn't have anything to do with religion. This has to do with opening to who you are as a human being. And when you, when you use the techniques which religions use, religions are basically empirical neurobiologies that develop over long periods of time by observation. You can now in science we we focus on what can be objectively verified and and to test the hypotheses. But basically, what needs to happen is that we need to recognize that we are more than animated meat, and that all consciousness, all life is interconnected and interdependent. That the Abrahamic Middle Bronze Age thinking, and you know most of Christian fundamentalism would be perfectly comfortable um, at about, oh, I don't know, 1800 BCE, because it's basically <laughs> Middle Bronze Age thinking. Males are dominant. Women should be submissive. We have dominion over the earth. It's an exploitable bank account that we can use however we will. Humans are not part of the same structure that we stand as a separate category. That's all Middle Bronze Age thinking that has remained as part of certain aspects, certain cults of Christianity. It's not has nothing to do with what Jesus said, by the way, but it's it's very much a part of of Christian fundamentalism, which is a cult. And so you have to get the idea that everything that you're doing as an individual and as a, I mean, let's just start with that. If you're an individual, what can you do to support well-being? Well, one thing you can do is stop using chemical fertilizers. You can stop using poisons. You can stop putting poisons in your house. You know, the average toxin level of an American citizen is enormously higher than it should be. And it has all kinds of health consequences. But when you recognize that all life is interconnected and interdependent, you realize that what you're doing is having an effect on a whole range of the ecosystem. So we need to see ourselves as integrated. We need to commit to well-being. That's it. It's wow. really quite simple. Thank you. Wow. What a great way to end our Wikipolitiki interview with Stefan Schwartz. Stefan, thank you so much for all the wisdom and uh, provocative thoughts you offered. We'll have to have you on again to talk about this non-local reality. This is Steve Behrman, Wikipolitik, and we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>